In the Cassandra Crossing, a deadly virus spreads on board a large passenger train. The film contains the expected spectacle, but it's the heavier themes that make it a different breed of disaster movie. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. I don't have a quote for this one. This is a movie podcast. We get together and we talk about a film. Uh, we usually work through franchises or themes and seasons of movies. And our current season is 70s disaster movies. This is our second episode in said season. And today we're looking at the Cassandra Crossing, which yes. is from 1976, directed by George P. Cosmatos, who I recognized that name and went, oh, what's he done? I definitely know that from something. Yeah, and absolutely. It tur- turns out I've seen three of his films alone in this. Uh, I have seen Rambo First Blood Part 2. I mm-hmm. have seen Cobra. So he did a couple of Stallone films. And then I've also seen, and actually quite enjoy, Leviathan, which is a underwater sci-fi horror movie that came out yeah. uh, in 1989. So, uh, yeah, interesting name to see. I was like, oh, damn, I, I definitely know him from some. I mean, it, I think, I don't know this, but I think his son is probably Panos Cosmatos, who, of course, did Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. I am I am quite fond of Beyond the Black Rainbow, I must say. <laughs> I must say. Uh, oh, also, also this guy did Tombstone, which actually is probably, oh, yeah. the, which is probably the most popular of all the things that he's done alone in this, but it's by far the one that I know, the, even though I've seen it, but I've seen it once. Mm. You know, it's got a good cast, but... Absolutely. I didn't really remember all that well. Uh, so, yes, the Cassandra Crossing will start spoiler-free, as we always do. We'll give you warning before we get into spoilers. It mm. is a film about a, a virus or a disease, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it breaks it out a on a train. bacterial agent. Technically, yes, it was something that was designed for bacterial warfare, uh, yes. specifically. But someone gets infected with it, and they sneak onto a train, and... Does that's the movie? Like, that's the movie. There's characters yeah. on the train who have to then deal you, with it. You say that's the movie as if this doesn't pivot like four times. Oh, it, it goes places, and yeah, literally because it's a, it's a train. It's it's, it's going <laughs> places. Wow! Yeah. Come on, come on! I was like, sometimes there's a softball, and you have to you have to hit it. You have to swing, and take your shot. I'll give it to you. I won't be happy about it, but I'll give it to you. Yeah. Uh, and as with a lot of these movies, we've got an ensemble cast. We've got uh, some fairly big names. Mm-hmm. Probably not quite as stacked as maybe some of the other disaster films, but there is definitely some names in here. Uh, we have a young Martin Sheen in here. Mm-hmm. We got Richard Harris, who I mainly know as an older actor because he's in Gladiator, and I think he was in the first couple of Harry Potter movies. Yeah, he was the original Dumbledore. Yeah, so obviously he's much younger here <laughs> compared to that. <laughs> um, we have O.J. Simpson, because why not? I, I often forget, because he he's in uh, Towering Inferno as well. I forget that he was already acting in the mm-hmm. 70s. Because, you know, I, I just, you know, I think of Top Gun, uh, not Top Gun, sorry, Naked Gun, uh, whatever right. I think of him being in movies. Uh, we also have Eva Gardner, uh, Sophia Loren, um, and, you know, a couple other faces you might recognize from things. Uh, Burt Lancaster's in there. So, yeah, yeah you, you've got uh, a big ensemble. Uh, all the passengers on the train, for the most part, one or two of them aren't, but that's by and large mm. who these people are. And they all have different roles to play in the movie. It's 
you know, I think last episode I described disaster movies as usually being a series of obstacles for characters to get over. Uh, mm-hmm. This actually falls into a, a sort of second type, which is more that there is a... Th- there is obviously something going on, but there's more of a countdown to a bigger disaster that is yeah. trying to be averted. Uh, and can they avert it kind of thing. So uh, this falls a little bit more into that category of disaster film. But it absolutely has a lot of the tropes. It has the, the ensemble cast. It has the feeling of a disaster movie. And, uh, you know, we'll get into all the other things. Now, I, I hadn't seen this before. In fact, I'd barely even heard of it until I went researching 70s disaster movies. So, yep. uh, yeah. So we'll get into it. We'll see how we felt. And we'll, we'll talk about it in depth. So, David, what did yes. you think of the Cassandra Crossing? <sighs> so, again, I'm not well-versed in 70s disaster. I'm barely versed in 70s, period. But... This is obviously, I wouldn't even say a step down from Poseidon Adventure. It is just ever so slightly, but it's more of just a lateral move. Like, it's such a completely different type of disaster movie where this isn't so much about problem solving as much as it is of just throw everything against the wall to try to get past the disaster. And in that regard, I guess I enjoy it, but it is, at times it gets so crazy with what it's doing that I feel that it kind of loses track of like, hey guys, there was a virus. Do we, do we remember that part? Uh-huh. I, I, I can see what you're <laughs> saying. Uh, yeah, obviously like, the premise sounded solid going in. Oh uh, yeah. You know, it sounded like a, a fine idea for, for a movie. Um, I have to say, I ended up being quite into it. Uh, but and I think the crazier it got, the more into it I was. But, okay, but the, but I think the main thing I liked about it though is th- this kind of boils down to two main points. Is one is it felt like it was actually trying to be kind of poignant by the end, which I don't think I would say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say almost no other disaster movie, even if they try, like, because Poseidon Adventure was a really fun movie, right? It had the really fun obstacles and all that, and it has a good character mm. beat towards the end for one of the main characters. I, I won't spoil it just in case you've skipped that episode and. You don't right. want spoilers for it. Um, but I wouldn't say it feels that poignant as a whole, whereas I would say that the last 10 minutes of this are very impressive in both tone yeah. and also I did not expect, and I, I will, I'm going to stay clear of spoiling a thing here, yeah. I will just say that the set piece at the end went way mm-hmm. further than I ever expected it to go, especially oh, for absolutely. this time period. Absolutely. I was, there are multiple points in this movie where they do special effects for not only things like the virus taking effect, but also them being on the train. They do certain special effects. And up until that last set piece, they all feel pretty cheap. Like nothing feels very well done in terms of the special effects. But then that last one is just like, nope, here's where all the money went. Literally all of it. (laughs) Yeah, and they're not even, it's not even that big a problem because by and large, it's just like, oh, there's a bit of, you know, rear screen projection out the window here or something, you know, right. it's just little things like that. And it's like, okay, for the most part, it doesn't really matter because we're just, it's a story, it's like almost like a bottle drama yeah. and disaster movie form because they're all just on these train cars. But mm. then obviously you have this big thing at the end and it's like, holy shit, they went places with that. And I, I did Absolutely, not expect yeah. it at all. Uh, and I thought the, I thought the, the Dower kind of like poignant thing it was trying to say at the end kind of landed for me in a way that i don't think most disaster movies do and uh, so i respect that i respect that a lot 
I think that this movie was definitely one whose ending saved it. I think that the first, the setup to the movie in general was good. Introducing the characters, fine. But the middle part for me is what really dragged it out and That's made it fair. like, okay, does this need to be two hours long? Probably not. But we're getting some character development and we're getting to know these people. So I accepted it. But then by the time it hit the end, I'm like, okay, now I see what we were going for this whole time. I think I respect as well that the ending, like, because the problem they're kind of facing in the final act is not what the first problem was that they were all introduced to in the first act. It's a very new kind of side thing that's got a big moral element to it. And I kind of like that. I think because it pivoted and because it wasn't just a typical disaster movie that played out the same beats, I was kind of, you know, like... And also, I just want to say, so the Cassandra Crossing uh, specifically is a bridge uh, in the film. And I just want to say... As weird as it may be, every time it cut to shots of this bridge, like because obviously they get there by the end, but throughout the film it cuts to shots of this bridge with what mm. I can only describe as horror movie music as it's selling the threat of getting to this yeah. bridge. And I loved every time it did this. I had a big <laughs> grin in my face. It was like these piano stings were playing. It's all these... Like the first time you see it, it's like, it's like spooky mist like going through this creaky old bridge that looks, you know, mm-hmm. rusty. And I was like... There's some atmosphere here. What's going on? Every, I'm liking every this. Time they, every time they cut to it, it felt like they were doing it like Michael Myers. Yeah. Because they had, they had a character specifically be like, we're going to have to go over the Cassandra crossing. And then all of a sudden, ominous music, the strings kick in. It's like, guys, it's a bridge. But they sold it as, like, this horrifying thing. But even then, like, if you took it on its own without the character's reactions to it, Nothing they're showing is that horrifying. They're just basically showing, like, rust. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's all in the direction. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the fog it machine. It's the, the the silhouette shots with the sun behind it. it it's, yeah. it's all these things. And the, it feels like it's a demonic entity <laughs> or something. I, I, I will say, uh, trivia-wise that I found is that apparently this bridge was made and designed by the guy who did the Eiffel Tower. So, <laughs> well, one out of two is not bad. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it. it is a, it's so, I, I mean, it is technically spoilers, so I won't get too much into it, but it is strange how hard the pivot changes the feel of the movie. Because for the first part, it's kind of this existential dread of like, okay, how long do we have? It's. They they explicitly say at one point that um they're going to be held in quarantine for 21 days and see how it all goes. But then as soon as the pivot happens, it immediately switches to, we know exactly how long we have, and it's a race against time. So it's it's a complete tone change halfway through, but it works. It works for this specific movie. I think it does, because so. I think, it just as it's starting to feel like it's getting slow, because maybe cause it, maybe it is a little too long in that first half or whatever, mm. when that tone change comes, it kind of feels like, oh, you've just perked me up. I'm interested again, because you, you've kind of mm. drawn me into this new idea. So, also, I guess one of the things we should mention here is that, you know, th- this plot hits a little differently, I think, in post-2020 world. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm sitting there. They're talking like, "Oh, you have no right to keep us on this train." I was like, "I feel like I've heard this before." Am I? Am I? Yeah, I, I like. I don't think I, when this movie came out, 
and there's like armed guards at one point not letting people off the train i have to assume mm-hmm. at the time there was probably just an instant feeling of this is outrageous why would they bring guns and all i can think about from 2020 is like you know what i i kind of sympathize with them like you know enforcing this yeah. <laughs> no i i 100 guarantee you like the movies that when the pandemic hit were big were the ones that were like you know the plague like the ones that are like oh no they're wiping out humanity but i guarantee you if this one got any public spotlight it would be like the the people who were protesting the quarantine and all that it would be their rallying cry they're like <laughs> see they they're incompetent look at them do this thing it, that is one thing in this movie was very strange to me was the demonization of the internet international health organization for some reason, they're played as just these horrible people in well, the public's eyes. I know, in the public's eyes, sure. I think I think one thing that's to be clear though is that they're not actually incompetent ones. It's actually American military who are the incompetent yeah. ones. <laughs> We're number one because uh, the, the entire premise to set up of the film is that terrorists are trying to blow up the the health organization for some reason mm. uh, because of all the nasty they say things. Terror- they're, they're a quote-unquote swedish peace movement peace, yeah why, why a peace movement's blowing up a building i don't know but i don't know um basically when they end up in a fight with the guards at the at the headquarters uh they bust into a lab and one of the guards like shoots this like you know beaker of some thumb something right and it goes all over and i swear i joked last week this is going to be chernobyl on a train i think or i, I said that yeah. somewhere recently and yeah sure enough like i was getting some chernobyl kind of flashbacks and when i say chernobyl i mean the miniseries about the disaster not the disaster itself uh and that we're showing this guy who's ran away and we know that he's been infected by this thing because he literally got the liquid on him it's not even just that he was close to it and you know it's like paying attention to everyone he's like walking past everything he touches everything he's near Mm -hmm. that he might have like you know left some sweat on or whatever like it's really paying yeah. attention to that, and I was like, "Oh, this is good shit." This is like, yeah, like I'm paying attention to this because you're focusing on it, and you're making yeah, it clear, I, I, oh, all the places he's been in the train and who might be infected, mm-hmm. and so on, and so on. Yeah, I was writing down in my notes specifically every time he passed by somebody to start with because I was like, "Oh, maybe there's going to be a thing later on mm-hmm. where like they have to trace it out and get that to the point of like, okay, who has been infected, who hasn't?" But then he's literally just like marching down the halls hugging children like <laughs> and i'm like okay now everyone's infected we're just gonna go with that and at one point it reaches him uh coughing into a bowl of steamed rice that was going to be served to passengers later and i'm like okay we're just gonna assume everybody and uh <laughs> we'll backtrack from there if it need be <laughs> yeah um so all that stuff i think is quite effective uh i i kind of like some of the overly cinematic direction of the bridge like i said oh, yeah. uh you know I, I and the cast by and large are are pretty good the, some of the characters are a little bit eccentric and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to spoilers but yeah um certainly memorable in different ways uh it was actually really funny is that martin sheen this same year was in a movie called the little girl down the lane or it's a title like that if i'm getting maybe slightly okay. getting it wrong but it's him and jodie foster uh, Jodie Foster being, of course, taxi driver age at the time, mm. 1976. Uh, and he's like this pervert pedophile in that movie who's trying to like get it on with like this, you know, 13-year-old. Uh, right. So it was just kind of like a, a surreal moment that he's in this as well. And he's not a kid, obviously, but he's actually the young boy toy of some like rich wife yeah. who's like taking him around Europe because, uh, you know, 
this this that's the one critique i'll give this movie is that the individual characters plots mm. are so disconnected like yes they all are working in this bigger thing but there is no even attempt to like kind of tie it together between any different plot you have the doctor and the writer plot you have this young boy toy and the cougar <laughs> plot you have oj simpson's plot which kind of ties into that last one and then you have the guy who just like sells watches uh, on the well, it's quite important and thematically as the movie goes he on. He is thematic, but they don't really... Everyone is separate. Everyone's doing their own things. And that's what I feel like makes the first half drag, is that we're developing each of their plots individually. We're cutting between yeah, each of them. Yeah. But they never really tie together that well. Yeah, if it obviously takes a bit of time, and it feels like it's taken a bit of time because it's come between all these ongoing plots that are kind of separate. But Right. Um. You know, once it does take those turns about halfway through, uh, oh yeah, you know, so it's uh, you know, true, true, all steam ahead, kind of, kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Without getting too much in the spoilers, there's not much more I could say. Special effects are really the only thing, and again, like you said, they don't use them that much, but when they are used, it feels, it feels like the cheapest part of the movie because, like you said, they go big on everything else and. Unlike uh, Poseidon Adventure, they show you they had access to this train. This oh, yeah. is not a set. They were on this train, and they were working with it constantly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there was sets as well to shoot a lot of the scenes, but... Oh, yeah. But, like, yeah, they had a train, and they had mm. a helicopter. Actually, one thing on helicopter... This is just a random observation of mine, yeah. but... Mm -hmm. Helicopters... The history of the helicopter is a weird thing to me, just in that... I feel like helicopters have looked the same for a long time, but there's a cutoff somewhere after this movie, right? Because this is this mm -hmm. is the pre-cutoff helicopter, where before a certain time, and I'm going to say 70s and back, to ever when okay. whatever helicopters existed up until the 70s, they have this kind of like like bubble glass at the front, and then like the sort of the the wireframe like structure, and they look this really okay. old school kind of thing, right? And I've seen it in other movies from this this period. Um, I think the, the like the old Batman show had a Batcopter <laughs> or right. something like that. Um, but then of course there's what you think of as a modern helicopter, and I feel like modern helicopters have looked like modern helicopters since probably the end of the seventies, start of the eighties. Yeah, I don't know why, but for some reason there's this cutoff where they just look ancient before that date, and then after that date they've all looked the same since. I'd imagine, and I'm. Have no basis for this. You're not a helicopter. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, expert no. or aficionado. I got a cousin. I got a cousin. I'm sure I could call in, but um, <laughs> no. I'm just going to put out there that the 70s were kind of the time, at least in America, where God knows we spend more on our military than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, 70s were kind of the time where there was that push for, hey, maybe things should be safer. <laughs> maybe we should have regulations so i'm just going to put out that maybe that's why that happened around that time oh, where they were like good, hey maybe we shouldn't have a literal ball of tinfoil attached to spinning blades and call it a day <laughs> that, that is a fair guess that is honestly as good a guess as i could have uh mustered to be honest yeah so uh fair play fair play uh, I mean, if I'm going to make all the nitpicks, is you know, it's, this is supposed to be a train in Switzerland that's going to to France, and mm. 
like other than some intentional background dialogue that you're not supposed to care about or understand there's very little of anyone speaking anything other than english yeah, yeah that was it was even moments where like they were at the uh train station in switzerland and two people who were very obviously of some european descent were just speaking in english to each yeah. other and it's like ah. I understand that from a accessibility standpoint of your audience, you don't want to have to constantly keep switching over to like subtitles or even just the audience not knowing what they're saying. But it does lose a little bit to it being like just that standard. Why is everyone speaking American? Oh, that's why, because it's American. Although to be fair, this one I think was done entirely in Italy and the UK. So... Uh, I mean, you'd be surprised how many uh, American movies are shot and because it's a uh, Pinewood and Shepparton studios in England mm-hmm. that, you know, Alien and Aliens were both shot in England. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, so it's, uh, that's not uncommon uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it is because you know, we were getting to this earlier on, but, you know, part, part of the, the reason why the. the so you've got this American, American military character, this colonel who comes in to call the shots and he's not actually mm-hmm. a part of the. The health organization he is there because oh this thing that we had in this jar was secret and we don't want anyone to know not i mean we obviously don't want it to break out and like cause a pandemic but we'd also mm-hmm. don't want him to know that we were doing it so a lot of the decisions sort of come from that aspect so there's a lot of a critique of like the untrustworthy you know the man if you will oh absolutely they they explicitly say that later on in the film they haven't be like you know i know it's not fashionable being a military man anymore it's like, oh, okay, so this is the man period. Got it. Yeah. Did we ever really leave that period? Did I? <laughs> nah, it just changed as to who the man was. <laughs> Nowadays, it's corporate policies. Ah, true, 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 true. Yes. I will say one thing with the International Health Organization was, you know, you walked in the front door, nobody there. You made your way down the hallway because these guys faked their way of them having, like, a patient yeah, they've got which, a stretcher, and like the third guy's in the stretcher pretending to be sick. Yeah, which doesn't... Like, that's like me going into a uh, children's hospital or something like that with, like, a broken leg and be like, uh, you're kind of in the wrong spot, but I guess we can help you. Um, But anyway, it, it, they make their way down to this hallway. They shoot a guard who's blocking this area for discernibly no reason, except that this is where all the secret stuff is. Well, to be and fair, then, there's a sign on the door that says, you know, top secret danger, you know, no, enough, one, no one go in or whatever. But this is the part that threw me that I feel like it's not a thing, is that down the hallway, everyone's organized by country. It's like, here's Canada's oh, room. Oh yeah, there's, a door, there's literally a door that says Canada on it. Yeah. And it's like down at the hall, the one that says, uh-oh, this is the worst, is America. And wouldn't you know it, they're the one to, and you say that they don't want anybody to know about the bacteria. It's because they explicitly say that they're breaking numerous international laws by storing this bacteria oh, yeah. in there's, Switzerland. There's a bit of a the terminal kind of like element to the plot where mm-hmm. this is not really brought up that much, but there is a mention of like none of the countries the train's going through is okay with them taking the passengers off the train oh, there because yeah. they don't want this to break out in their country. <laughs> exactly. So this train has become international or. Possibly even just this is U.S. land. This train is U.S. soil. Yeah, <laughs> like you're not coming off of it without you know clearing some passports. Which does make me wonder. 
It does make me wonder is that they clearly had to talk to these companies saying, hey, can we stop this train in your country or pass through your country? And they say, why? And they say, oh, because there's a deadly virus. And they say, no. <laughs> so by the end of the movie, you get this whole thing. And this isn't really spoilers, but you get the whole thing, like you said, of him wanting to hide that this virus is a thing. Clearly, they know. The countries explicitly know and say you I'm, can't stop it here. I, I mean, that to be fair, we only know we only hear that from him. So maybe he was lying when he said that. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, because he is constantly lying to this like uh, doctor lady that he brings in for advice. Mm -hmm. He's constantly withholding truth and saying we'll take this call in private, corporal, and things yeah. like that. So I do love the character of the doctor because she is trying to insert herself into as much of this as possible and like it comes down to one point the guy brings in some files be like oh here's the uh examination of the bridge sir and she just like walks over and looks at it and he's like no <laughs> you go back to your medicine lady yeah yeah because uh, I, I was getting ready to critique it uh, at the start and this is this is exactly what it turned out to be is that she just didn't know something because they've got, like, uh, one of the terrorists, like, in a hospital bed, just sort of dying, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the colonel comes in, he's asking questions, they try to talk to him, but he can't speak, he's too sick. And she is basically saying, well, th thankfully, we've got him here, and there's no breakout to be worried about. And I'm like, right. wait, there was guards shooting at him. Like, they knew there was another guy who got away. Why? And yeah. then, but then it turns out the colonel does know this, and it's just her that's not been told this, because it's top secret. And I'm like, okay, okay, that's fine, that's fine. She just didn't know. Yeah. Uh, but like, cause he, he like, I mean, it's like, no, there was another man and he's out there somewhere. So I will say I liked, they did a little investigatory thing at the very beginning of how they managed to track him down to be on this train. Mm -hmm. And like, they had to wait until the one guy, the other terrorist died. They searched through his stuff and they found the train ticket. And the only part of that that threw me was that the dude just snuck onto the train like he didn't he he purposely just hitched a ride he was not he didn't use his ticket he just jumped on the train so why i don't understand why the ticket part was necessary you know it seemed like he could have theoretically have jumped onto any train um i think it was less about because i don't know if the ticket was for that specific train necessarily maybe it was i think mm. it was more the idea of okay this is what his destination was going to be so like okay let's look at the trains that are going in that direction let's look at the planes that are going in that direction oh we've checked all the airports no one's that's fair because yeah, they, they, they say that say at that. one point yeah mm -hmm. so it's like he's probably on that train uh this is like the okay. most likely place for it and sure enough as it goes on they become more clear. yeah uh, but I did like I did like that investigation stuff where they it showed you the clear line of like all right how do we narrow down from just a dude in a turtleneck to specifically that train and they showed the process at the very least yeah so yeah I, I think we'll we'll give the spoiler warning so we can start talking about the movie properly in depth and it's yep. yeah it's just got it goes places like I said <laughs> yeah, it really spoiler does war spoiler warning in three two one. It's not a virus disaster movie. Well, it is until it's not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's uh, it's many things though. It is many things. Mm -hmm. uh, we're interested to all of our characters. Of course, we see them arriving at the train station and get their various introductions. You got O.J. Simpson, who seems to be a priest, although very quickly it teases that he's not quite who he says he is. 
And mm. there is a line, uh, it's like when the colonel gets a list of the passengers, like, he's like going, oh god, there's this famous doctor guy on board, and in fact, there's even someone on board that's uh, been wanted by Interpol for, for smuggling heroin. And mm. I actually thought O.J. Simpson was the smuggler because he was acting all cagey, yeah. we see his tattoo that he's hiding from the, the kid and all that. Um, mm. Obviously, the reveal later on is that he's actually, from Interpol, hunting down the heroin smuggler. He's, he's investigating. Uh, yep. So you've got that element of it. Uh, we see Martin Sheen, with, he's got like an ascot on and he's, he's with this rich lady who <laughs> is married to a German arms manufacturer? Yeah, I, I tried looking this guy up and I can't find it. His name is Hugo and her last name is Dressler, but Hugo Dressler does not come up, so well, I don't know. I assume it's just fictional. I, 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 I never took it as a real person. You see, see, yes, I agree. But at the same point, like as they're using guns later on in this film, she explicitly points out like the make the model and says, my husband makes these. He'd be happy to know you're using them. So I feel like that's too specific of a reference to not have. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I've, I spent far too long trying to find this guy. <laughs> uh, I didn't give it a second thought, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you're here to answer the the I'm irrelevant the questions. <laughs> I know things that no one needs to know. I was going to say answer the tough questions, but it's not a tough. It's just an irrelevant question. <laughs> Did you know that I'm blanking on his name right now? Richard Harris was married to the girl who's like the singer in that weird band thing. Ah, oh, did he get his uh, girlfriend or wife apart there? Did he? No, she earned it of her own <laughs> right. If you want to actually know about that, uh, the one of the producers of the movie, um, I forget who at the moment, but is the husband of Sophia Loren and basically just got her the lead part because he thought it would be a good showcase for her. I mean, she's good in the role. I can't really yeah. complain that much. Uh, just trying to remember what... Do I know her from in, in particular? I don't know if I do. She's been in, she's been in a decent amount. Yeah, she's been like, in a lot she, of stuff, yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If, I was wondering if there was something specific, but I don't know if there is. Um, mm. So yeah, you're interested in Martin Sheen and his uh, like sugar mama, basically. <laughs> uh, and it turns out later that he is the heroin smuggler, and he's basically getting through like security really easily because he's with her, and she's yeah. she's been treated like royalty by everyone. So uh, that's all fine. Uh, Richard Harris plays uh, a doctor, Doctor Chamberlain, who is uh, you know a semi-famous uh, doctor. And I say semi-famous, like, regular people don't really recognize him, but he's on a magazine cover, and like other doctors know who he is kind of thing. Yeah, I think the one point was the, uh, if we're just going to keep calling her the Sugar Mama, the Sugar Mama at one point <laughs> says, I've heard your name, but I genuinely don't know what you're famous for. Like, it's that kind of level of yeah. famous, where he's talked about, but everyone's like, oh yeah, that guy, he's, sure, yeah. whatever. That sums him up. And then we have his uh, two-time ex-wife, which is Sophia mm -hmm. Loren's character, uh, uh, the, the writer uh, Jennifer, who intentionally comes out of the train because she knows he's going to be there to potentially mm. rekindle their marriage, even though it, it seems they've got kind of this like almost comical like Sam and Diane thing where they, they kind of oh, yeah. are bickering back and forth in a sort of playful way and uh, clearly have chemistry and, and all the rest mm. of it. So uh, you, you've got all them. Uh, you've got an older man, uh, Kaplan, yep. who uh, sells watches and does the, the occasional little magic trick. Yeah, I. it took me a long time to figure out exactly what his character was, but in the end, I think it's revealed that he is a Holocaust survivor. 
I don't even know if they ever outright say it. It's it's just so it's just very heavily yeah. indicated that that's what he is. Yeah. Yeah, and basically, it sounds like he's homeless, and he just rides this train back and forth, like trying to sell watches and stuff to people. Yeah, yeah, because he knows like the conductor, he knows like the guy who sells the tickets and all that. Like he, he knows everyone who works there and gets yeah. on with them. So that just seems to be his, his thing. Um, mm. Yeah, and he tr- he tries to because uh, O.J. Simpson gets like a free upgrade to first class because he's a priest, right. and. Uh, Kaplan comes in and he's like, oh, if it's a free upgrade, I'll, I'll take one as well. And the guy's like, nah, sorry. <laughs> Which I don't get because you say it's because he's a priest. That wasn't the literal reason he gave the upgrade. He's like, oh, there's not a lot of people in first class this trip. Here you go. And he's like, can I have one? No. Screw you. <laughs> like, it didn't feel like there was any reason well, not well, to give this guy first class. It, it, I don't think I've had him sure, but like it definitely started off as, oh, like, you know, not first class for your father. Oh no, the church mm-hmm. would never pay for that. Well, here, here it is on me. There's not a lot of people there, so you can have it yeah. on the house, kind of thing. Uh, uh yeah, but yeah, I should have given enough. it to Kaplan as well. Like, I don't know why. Oh yeah, went. absolutely. Um, um, one other, it's barely even in the movie, but one group that I really want to bring attention to is the traveling band, who has gotten a ride on this train only because. That was also in Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> like, was this just a thing in the 70s that there was just always a traveling band? Yeah, I guess. All right. Uh, Whatever. So, sure. I'll, 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 that's my guess. To it. I actually, I, I thought the younger couple came from this band, but I don't actually think they did. Like, uh, Did they not? I thought they maybe did. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. But you never see them with the band again, so I wasn't sure as the movie went on if that's where they came from. But yeah, there's like yeah. a younger couple... Uh, one of whom you said was the the wife of Richard Harris, yes. um, but we, we basically they're, they're just having sex and then they get involved in the plot uh, at various yep. points. Uh, but they're they're relatively minor characters compared to everyone else we've mentioned. Obviously, yeah. the Colonel who's back at the high tech headquarters in the nineteen seventies, uh, looking at his maps and like uh, modern high tech TV screen. Uh, I'm making fun of it because obviously it's the seventies and we're you know it is, but it's like. I can I can see this is because didn't Star Wars come out around this time? Uh, the year after this, year after. So you can see like the writing on the wall because it it's almost the same sort of style as like the uh, what is it the the Rebel ship at the very beginning of the first Star Wars mm-hmm. where it's like all white, very pasty. There's sliding doors everywhere for no reason, and all like the buttons and displays and whatnot are as advanced as they possibly could be in the 70s but it is so hilarious to just see that and it's it's played up for this like i'm sure at the time oh look how high tech all of their stuff is they, <laughs> they've got this map that like does this and i'm like i literally have seen better things on a nokia like, <laughs> this is not that hey, great the in train, retrospect the train lanes light up and you can see where the train is on the train line. It's high Which tech. that, strangely enough, that's the one part that made no sense to me at all. Like, they, did they just go through and like wire up all the train tracks to show where trains are at any given point? Because I don't feel like they should have this tech, honestly. That that somehow feels too high tech for what they would have yeah, at the no, time. Yeah, no, it's the sort of thing where now it's just, you know, it's basically just GPS or whatever and you just sort of yeah. accept it. But then you think about it and go wait a minute the 1970s didn't have any of the infrastructure for that <laughs> yeah, so exactly what's going on here 
I think the, the honest answer is is that the movie just wanted the characters on that side of the story being able to tell where the train is for drama's sake. That's the right, simple response. Yeah. Rather than them having to stay on the phone with like a train conductor who's in like the, I guess the rail switching station, just be like, oh, they just passed by. Yeah. All right, that's where they are. Uh, other helicopters just like on constantly talking to them. Oh, they're just, just going through this part of uh, whatever now. I do like how they manage to structure the train ride to make it explain like, here's why we cannot help them. And they explicitly say, like, look, we're trying to get the body off. We're getting it off by helicopter. Uh, but they are approaching this tunnel that leads into the mountains. And they explicitly say that once they get into the mountains, it is impossible for helicopter to get to them. There is no way for them to fly out there. So they are essentially forced to be on their own. I also and I think that was a creative way of doing that, at least. Yeah, I also think as much as we're saying the first half maybe gets a little slow uh, mm -hmm. a touch towards the back end of it. I do think there is kind of a neat build up to the midway point where we kind of learn of this plan where they're going to like stop and get like a basically medical help and like whatever the military and the scientists are going to do in Stockholm mm -hmm. and then it's on the way to the Cassandra Crossing. They, they kind of built up that like there is going to be this turning point in the story at Stockholm and that's where a lot of the passengers are finally going to find out they're in trouble because up until right. this point most of the passengers don't know anything's going on and they like the one one of them does notice uh, you know i think um is it the young wife it's jenny or is it jenny yeah, who notices yeah uh, that they actually pass by the train station that we're supposed to stop at and doesn't you know it's like wait why did we just not stop like right. some people were supposed to get off there i was gonna say i feel like somebody should have noticed that they're like oh hey look honey we're coming up to the oh <laughs> okay uh sir but you know it, it builds up to this sort of midway point and it does feel like a sort of like uh mid-finale if you will you know to, to yeah. compare it to like a tv show it feels like a mid-season finale when they get to stockholm and mm. it, that's where the tone really starts to take a shift it starts to feel quite dire it feels like oh shit those guys in hazmat suits with guns like outside the train and they're they're putting these big like shutters on all the windows so that no one can like yep. escape through the windows and the colonel gives the order like if anyone tries to run like shoot them they, yeah. they can't let them out of the population and I mean, they did explicitly at one point have the colonel hop over the intercom and basically tell them like, hey, some of you have noticed we've been skipping stations. That's because there was a bomb threat. Mm -hmm. We're going to reroute you. You're fine. Everything's cool. And that's where people start freaking out because they're like, uh, we need to get to our places. And it's only once they arrive at this, uh, I think you said Stockholm, that they're given the full truth of like, okay, you guys are going to be trapped here. We're putting you in quarantine. We're driving you out to Poland and uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be quarantining for three weeks at the very least and mm -hmm. you're going to have to deal with that. Yeah, because obviously people, yeah, they're furious. Like, because yeah. this isn't just like they're going to a slightly different town. Some of these people thought they were going to Paris on this train or are being diverted to Poland. That's a pretty big diversion. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it's, I honestly think the weirdest part is that there, we only see like two, three people really freak out. Like, yeah, everyone's pissed off once the guys and guns come on, they kind of like back off. But there's only like, there's one woman who just screams for no reason, as far as I could tell. 
Like there's, she she sees some guards walking down the aisles, and then she just freaks out, starts pounding on the glass, and then uh, Kaplan, he makes his way and actually tries to sneak off the train and is shot, but he gets better. <laughs> well, I actually thought they were going to kill him here, and I thought it was going to be this dark Same. moment. And uh, this is where you first start to get a hint of maybe what the movie is actually going to try and do, because he you know he say he just sort of really ominously says, "I can't go back there," when they mm-hmm. mention Poland and they mention kind of like the 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 part of Poland they're going to. And that's where you first sort of get the idea that, oh, like, is he a Holocaust survivor? Because this, mm-hmm. this kind of sounds like what he's talking about. And he's about the right age, you know, you know, yeah. for, for the 70s and all that. And I was actually expecting a reveal because at one point, I think the doctor's like checking his arm and I, I was expecting a, a reveal of a number. Yeah. And, then, and they never did it. They never like uh, went down that path to actually spell it out to us, which I can appreciate. Like, I don't think it need to be. Like, you know, I, no, I, no, I got no. it, certainly. Uh, so, especially mm-hmm. as the movie went on and it was it wasn't just like oh he doesn't like poland it wasn't that <laughs> like he, he this man is mortified yeah. of the idea of going back to this place see what the only part that was weird to me was that he wasn't his trigger for it the thing he was freaked out about wasn't the end destination the part that freaked him out was specifically the cassandra crossing it was the bridge and maybe it's like a one-way street or something like that, where as soon as you hit the bridge, you know like where the end result's going to be. But it seemed weird to me that if he was in some sort of concentration camp or something, or if he was in some sort of camp in Poland, that the name of the camp wouldn't be the thing he was repeating, you know? it's. I felt like it was strictly designed just so it's like, no, 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 guys, the biggest threat is the bridge. You want to freak out about the bridge? Yeah, the camp's wet. The bridge, though. Yeah, he, he does... Because there's a line where uh, they say, "Oh yeah, they're going to put us in a, a isolation camp, at, a health camp at, at the uh, at Cassandra Crossing," and he says, "Is that what they're calling it these days?" And right. I think it's very notable though that he's a very upbeat, kind of like laughable old man up until this point mm-hmm. in the movie. Like he was very cheery. He tries to make friends with people. He jokes around with the doctor at one point, sort of like basically steals his watch, you know, like, without him realizing, right off and presents yeah. and presents it back to him, and sort of and it's all a jokey little moment. He's friends with the conductor. He's joking around with everyone. He seems to get on with everyone. Mm-hmm. And then there's this turn where all of a sudden he is mortified about where they might be going. And mm. I thought he was, you know, just going to run and get shot and die. Obviously, yeah. he gets shot in the arm and he kind of just sort of, you know, it, it, from that point on, he's basically just sitting there kind of like just out of it. Like For, for most of the movie, yeah. he's just kind of sitting there until he decides to kind of like do something towards the end. And, you know, it's a big moment for him towards the end that mm. kind of finally pays off this, this, you know, feeling that he's got. But, uh, that's uh, even just introducing this idea of a Holocaust survivor, not wanting to go to this location for that reason. Immediately my brain started, you know, just uh, thinking and I was like, okay, is the movie like trying to actually make a point here and say something? Is it going to actually do something oh, yeah. with this? And I think by the end it did. Like as it started to introduce other things into it, um, particularly when it became t- you know because ultimately as the movie goes on, uh, like the dog that gets infected early on, like the the, the guy who sneaks mm-hmm. on the train ends up like hiding next to the dog, and the dog gets infected, and they realize this and they send the dog away uh, with a helicopter, and the dog gets yeah. better. And then, not too long after that, passengers on the train start to get better. And it turns mm. out that just all the extra oxygen that they're pumping into the train 
uh is what's helping them right and okay fine whatever if that's the if that's what cures this that's fine we'll accept it it's a movie i'm i'm willing to accept that save for they they wrote themselves into a corner that they felt the need to explain themselves out of which was the first guy that they had in the hospital and they were talking to they were like well we gave him oxygen and he still died and they were like oh it's uh it's because it was absorbed into his blood that's totally different i'm like no it's not (laughs) you didn't even need to have that like i would have forgotten it if you didn't even bother to mention it but they felt the need to explain this half-assed explanation of like yeah no it got into an open wound anyway let's talk about the train some more right i mean they could have just said he was also shot multiple times yeah, I feel like that would have killed him. <laughs> like, that would have done it. Like, his body was too weak to fight at the end. Like, like yeah. Anyway, so it becomes this thing where it's like, at this point in the movie, I'm thinking, wait, they're starting to get better. And there was a, there is a couple of deaths, and like there's maybe like an old person who dies from it because they're just too yeah. old to fight it, and they sort of have a heart and, attack or something. You know, they mentioned that. Well, they all, they, all, they all get sick before the oxygen starts getting pumped in. So they they die before that. That's also true, yeah. But but the, the, the one, well, not everyone gets sick though. Like you know, no, no, because no. even say early on, it's like sixty percent of people will get it. Not everyone. They say sixty percent, and like theory, they said that this train holds a thousand people, so six hundred people should be sick. I feel like we saw like ten. To be fair, I don't feel no, like. But to it be was fair, I I think that's in terms of a scale though. I feel like I was never convinced there was a thousand people on this train. True, because I looked at the train and went. I would guess maybe 300 people are on this train. I wasn't convinced that there were that many people on the train until the final oh, yeah, set sure, piece yeah. of this movie. Yeah, we'll, where all of we'll a sudden get, it's like, who are these people? And we'll get to it. Anyway, I'll try, I'll try to explain sorry, the, the sorry, damn thing. Sorry. <laughs> so at this point in the movie, it, it, it becomes like, wait, the people are getting healthier. There's actually no risk. But mm-hmm. by this point, the communications have been shut up. We'll get. We'll talk about why <laughs> later. Yeah. Uh, but the communications have been shut up, and they're just they're going towards Cassandra Crossing, and it becomes about like convincing, if not those in charge, and then at least the, the people on the train that are operating for the people in charge mm-hmm. that there is no threat, and that the the rickety old bridge that might collapse if the train goes over it is actually the real threat, and it's about mm-hmm. trying to kind of like. Is the the determination to hide what's going on going to end up killing the people rather than the actual virus itself? And mm-hmm. is it the man? Is it the military? You know those elements that are going to actually do the, the do the harm. And the line that stuck out to me specifically that made made me sort of tie it back into the idea of this Holocaust survivor on the train is mm-hmm. so the colonel is the, you know the, the the doctor lady with him giving him advice. Yeah is constantly questioning things and constantly saying, hey, the dog's getting better. Like, they're probably getting better. We should probably contact them. And he's like, it's too late. Like, they have to go this way, blah, blah, blah. And it mm-hmm. becomes, she slowly realizes as she's trying to convince him and getting no response and he's giving her these cold looks, she's realizing what this all means and kind of confronts him with the truth of what he's doing. And he's effectively sending these people to die. And mm-hmm. he says, oh, you think I'm a murderer? And she's no, I don't think you're a murderer. I think you're just willing to let it happen. And I don't know if that's worse. Right. And, you know, this idea of, like, turning an eye and letting this happen and the, the the idea that the people on the train are going to have to actually fight to live when the people up top are making decisions that are just abandoning them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I I, th- I thought thematically there were some, some things in there that were, were kind of lining up a little bit. Oh, yeah. The whole movie, once you get into the second half, is 
basically the bad guys are blindly obeying orders and the good guys are taking up and fighting against the system that that's the central theme of at least the second half of the movie where it is think for yourself do your own thing don't just blindly accept what's put in front of you and because of that it comes off very strongly as we said anti-man anti-military <laughs> where it is you know these these people who otherwise are just average people you got a doctor you got uh the the one guy who's the boyfriend of the young girl like he had nothing else to do in this movie yet he was still picking up a gun and taking shots against the other <laughs> guards so everyone here is just sort of fighting against the man once it's obvious that the man is basically trying to kill them so yeah it is very much it, that line does centralize the theme of a little bit of Holocaust-like parallels, but more so, I think, just the don't blindly follow orders. Yeah, yeah. Which I, which I think also ties into that as well, because, you know, that that's very much something that many would say, I was just following orders. And, yeah. you know, so there, there's the, like... It's a very ballsy thing for this to, for a disaster movie to effectively try and like bring illusions of that up and yeah. try try and do something with it. And I'm not saying it's like the most in depth thing ever. I'm not saying it's like this you know like artsy film, but it yeah. did strike a few chords towards the end. I, I I do think that it does feel quite nihilistic as like the race against time is running out and like even people who didn't really like each other before are starting to team up and work together to fight the man. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've got, like, the Interpol officer working with the, the this heroin smuggler who yeah. is willing to help and try and, like, fight back and all these things. And Martin Sheen ultimately ends up getting killed trying to help everyone else by climbing yeah. alongside the train. That's what I feel like is most nihilistic about it, is the fact that they've put forward plan after plan after plan, and it all just keeps failing. Like, everything they've tried to do... And it's like not even failing in ways that are predictable. It's failing in ways that are just like, no, God personally hates you. <laughs> like the one point of uh, they had an idea to blow up one of the carriages in order to separate it from the rest of the train. And they they have to light a fuse. So they have to first make a fuse and then they need to light it. And they've confiscated all lighters prior to this point. So Jenny goes around and finds a single match to light this thing. And immediately, movie-wise, you're thinking like, oh, that one match, it's going <laughs> to it's gonna like take a while to light, but then it's going to make its way down and it's going to go off. But like, no, it just extinguishes. Like, they light the fuse and it doesn't make it. And it's like, oh, all right, well. No, no, no does it not make it. It, even, it makes it like maybe five inches before it gives up. And then yeah. that's it. It's like, it's like, oh, shit, okay. Exactly. It's just like, no, God personally hates you and does not want this to succeed. Yeah, and they and have to actively fight against the odds there. And it's Kaplan who kind of goes in and sacrifices himself. He just walks in very stoically and and makes this sacrifice mm -hmm. to, to, to make this explosion happen, which allows them to separate the, the train. And um, mm -hmm. if, if I have a critique, if I had, if I was, and I don't have a lot to critique about the ending because I actually really like most of it yeah. and think it's, yeah. it's hard hitting uh, in a number of ways. The only thing I'll really critique is that I, I never felt it was very clear like how far forward or back on the train they were, whether we're making the separation. 
yeah. uh, it, honestly it seems like halfway to be honest given like how mm-hmm. many cars we see go down uh yeah. at the end but like it, it does feel like everything's kind of like ticking up to this conclusion and there's a couple of really quick succinct deaths or at least like serious wounds where we see like i think it's the boyfriend character and then immediately mm-hmm. um one of the other characters gets shot because it's like the you know, they're, they're yeah. having these gunfights like in you know these not just like the train cars but like you know like when you the the cars that have the cabins so you've just got that narrow pathway at the side right and they're mm-hmm. just like using the, the the cabins for cover and they're, they're taking shots at each other mm-hmm. and at one point like the the hazmat suit guys who are the bad guys in, in context mm-hmm. here are jumping into the carriages that have nothing but children in them and like popping out and taking shots and then hiding with the kids and then popping out and taking shots yeah and it's like yeah they're showing this complete disrespect to follow orders to to do whatever is asked of them mm-hmm. and these other people who have figured out that they're going towards certain death and that the the colonel's plan is probably like uh it's probably convenient for us if they all just die in an accident oh absolutely you know, that's kind of his thing i mean even when you get to the uh, not to spoil too much but at the very end of the movie he assumes everyone died and he calls up uh one of his superiors and says like hey we, there's been an accident there were no survivors and there's a beat and then he says yes well, thank you, sir. And it sounds like he just got a promotion. It sounds like yeah. he was just given like commendations for getting this to happen. I, I loved that. That was actually one of my favorite moments of the whole film, is because uh, mm-hmm. it is cutting back and forth of the the half of the train that has survived because they were able to like disconnect it. So the mm-hmm. back half of the train, notably uh, as they mentioned during the film, is mostly the second class passengers. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that it's the the the, the rich passengers that <laughs> ended up mostly getting taken out. Fight the man, man. But. Uh, it's cutting between them being happy that they've survived for you know what little like success they've had now and it's mm. cutting to like the colonel saying yes thank you sir very you know very quietly and just very calmly being thanked mm. for it and the end of the film is that you know you hear that oh yes don't worry like uh, the colonel and dr lady are both under surveillance uh, in case they mm. try to talk to anyone this idea being that he's just another cog in the machine and even though he was the big bad villain in this movie to us he's just mm potentially the victim of someone higher up the food chain later oh, on absolutely if he steps out of line or if he doesn't conform or, or whatever uh i do it's, I, it's got a point it's, you know, it's, it's got a message yeah. at the end yeah i do think the colonel was probably one of the better written characters here because it did manage to convince me that he doesn't particularly want this to happen he doesn't want like a thousand innocent people to die on his watch but he has already done the debate in his head and his duty to his country, his patriotism won out over disobeying orders, basically. And when it comes to the end of the movie of him making that call, yes, he's getting commendations for it, but he doesn't seem particularly happy. Like he's not happy that it happened. Um, Cause the one other soldier like offers him out for drinks and he's like, Hey, yeah, there's this nice little coffee place around the corner. And he just stoically walks down the hallway and leaves without a word. Yeah, like, he's aware that what he made morally, ethically, was probably not the right decision, but he still made that decision because it was his duty to do so. And there's a few interesting choices at this this end. Uh, and we're, we're talking about the final scenes here. Obviously, we're going to talk about the actual, yeah. well, the literal train wreck. Uh, yeah. But the 
I think the idea that we don't even know what his superior officer is, and this video is like, it's just him talking to a phone. We don't hear the other voice. We don't hear him say any kind of indication of rank or if it's like the president or if it's whoever, mm-hmm. like whoever this could be. It's just a faceless, voiceless entity because mm-hmm. that's all it is. And I think that's a really wise choice. Him not responding to the other soldier when he's asked to go out for a drink. I think it's a wise choice. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea, and this is curious because I think part of me really wanted him to find out no half of the train at least survived i was waiting for it i just yeah. wanted that i wanted the when the phone started ringing in the uh office and the other soldier picked up i thought that was going to be the call mm-hmm. saying like ariel has reported that there are all these extra people and it's gonna you just imagine the fallout that comes out from that but instead it left it kind of up strangely enough uh, another disaster movie of the core mm-hmm. if you remember how that one ended uh vaguely. where where basically they put this, the whole fact that the Earth's core stopped spinning, they just buried it and nobody knew. And therefore all the people who died were left completely nameless because they didn't get to be recognized as heroes. But then they leaked it. They leaked it out. And the end credits are basically showing all these news organizations picking up the story uh, okay, okay. and saying, oh, this thing happened. I really was waiting for that kind of moment where it was like, maybe not over the credits or anything like that, but just the idea that they know they know that there are survivors and we get to see that this fallout this domino chain has yeah. begun and you, you know what has to happen they're not going to like oh, like yeah. the, the, all these people surviving means that the, the story is going to get out and it's going to be talked about but mm. it's i think it's a very interesting choice to not see this because it's like you were saying just a minute ago is that well he's kind of the villain of the movie ultimately because he's the one enforcing this he doesn't necessarily like that he's doing it. And I think in a, in a weird way, it's almost too much of a happy ending for him to find out that they got to survive, right? Or at least enough of them got to survive. That's true. You know, so that. leaving him in this moment where he thinks he successfully helped kill a thousand people for his country mm-hmm. kind of keeps the downbeat ending alive in a, in a weird way. See, yes, I agree, but it was only because they explicitly put in the line that he can absolutely confirm that everyone died. Mm. Like, he put his career on the line in that moment of saying, I confirm that they all died. That was the only thing I think would have kept it as a dour ending, even on his side, because after everything he did, after all of the horrible decisions he made in the name of his country, his country's probably going to still stab him in the back and say, no, you confirmed that they were dead. Like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking from the perspective of, like, maybe even if he is in trouble because he failed to do his job he's deep down actually happy you know maybe he'll he'll realize you know i'm actually happier that like somehow they fought against what i was doing and were able to get out so i think in this weird way him walking off thinking he's done this and that's a job well done but he feels you know not great about it Mm -hmm. uh works for the ending so there's there's a lot of interesting little choices like that uh, at the end of the film as to like yeah like you know, keep keeping the superior officer, whoever it may be, a mystery, uh, mm. and just all these other little things. Yeah, the actual train wrecks. Obviously, there's all this big stuff with Martin Sheen like climbing outside the train and like going along, uh, and then just being yeah. shot down by one of the guards when they notice him inside. Yeah, and just falling to like, his death. It's very unceremonial. It's very yeah. much just like a, again, like the fuse just blowing out. It's just that no, you can't succeed here. This is not going to work, and it feels so just almost mean-spirited in the way that it's done where it's it's 
feels like these guys aren't given a fair shot as would be in like another action movie where you know in in any other movie martin sheen would have made it to like the second to last car like he would have been right up next to the engineer and then something would have happened but here he wasn't even like two cars down when he got shot he barely got an attempt yeah it, it's it's weird because obviously there's some things in the movie that are a little ridiculous or over the top because it's a movie but at the same mm-hmm. time that that exact point makes it feel more realistic just because yeah, it's exactly. a bit more punishing and it's a bit more relentless i i think that's the thing is you know when we get to this this last part in the train where Mm. like yeah the 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 brakes are you know it's separated and the conductor slams on the brakes for the cars that are still moving behind so they're they're, they're Mm. sort of stopping at the edge of the bridge but the front however many cars go onto the bridge and the the doctor actually says at one point uh before this because they're what part of the, the the train that they're they're separating from that will still be in the front half has some mm. of the children in it and yeah uh you know one of the, the little girl that was talking to oj through a lot of the movie you know early on they keeps calling them sweets uh mm. she ends up back in the back half of the train because she ends up you know walking out and he has to like def- he ends up getting shot at uh, defending her and like yeah. sort of shielding her uh so he gets mm. his big sort of like heroic send-off moment but there's a line from the doctor here when this is brought up from his ex-wife that that's unfortunate but we have to hope that because we're separating the train there's less train going over the bridge so therefore it's got a better chance of making it which logically okay that that does make some sense like that's not a Mm -hmm. a silly thing but holy shit as soon as they hit this bridge and you know we see it creaking in you know it's all rickety and whatever it just collapses and we get obviously the the shots of the model train like coming down and stuff Mm -hmm. but what i was not prepared for was all of the really visceral interior shots yeah of people like falling down as the train obviously is at an angle uh like beams mm. get into people as they're sitting down in the train people screaming yeah. just bloody faces just like uh it's it's so rapidly cut as well whereas all, all the lead up to this particular scene has been not not rapid cuts but a little bit longer just yeah you know a good second or two holding on each it's shot it. at the very least this one it's every half second you're seeing a new gourd face flashing up in front of you because i would say i would describe the movie as much as you're, you're right in saying it's a little bit more intense and quick cut you mm. know immediately preceding this because obviously it's ramping up i would say mm. the movie is mostly a slower burn where it's like you know the slow tension of like the virus spreading and then the discovery yeah. of it and the slow realization of where they're going and so on and so on that, that's I think I'm quite comfortable in saying that this, you know, sequence of this train going down with this bridge and everyone inside dying is probably the most affecting scene I've ever seen in the disaster movie of the destruction itself. And I think part of it's because it is at the end. Is because I think most disaster movies, it's the end of Act One. They'll have their initial big earthquake or volcano erupting right. or whatever it may be. The ship getting, you know, capsized. And you'll see some death and stuff, but that's just the setup for the group of characters who survive, who then have to try and survive the rest of it. Here, mm. we've spent all this time building up. They've caught this deadly virus. They've caught, like, you know, COVID-18. <laughs> and they've found <laughs> out... COVID-76. Yeah, and they've found out late on in the film, you know what? It turns out it's actually quite easy to cure and we're all okay. It's not actually deadly. Only to find out we're heading towards certain death anyway. So... Something about this ending and seeing all these people die horrifically on the train actually was like quite shocking and affecting. And I was like, I'm impressed. I'm yeah. impressed you're evoking some emotion out of me on this because disaster movies, 
for as much as I enjoy a lot of them, I don't tend to feel stuff for when people are dying in them. It's just kind of a bit of fun, you know, it's a bit of yeah, whatever. The only the only one that I would compare it to, and it is very different in its execution, is Deep Impact. Where, mm, okay, okay. you know, Meteor comes in, Meteor hits. But unlike, say, Armageddon, where, you know, <laughs> there's this hope of humanity and, oh, they, they might be able to save the day. Like, half of Deep Impact revolves around the fact of, we don't have an exit strategy. Like, a lot of people are going to die. And in the end of the movie, a lot of people die. Mm. And this, I feel, is close to the same way where they think, they hope that if they do something soon enough, they can actually survive everyone. Like, the whole train could survive. That's when they're still, when uh, Martin Sheen's making his way up to the front of the train to convince the guy to stop. Like, or when they're trying to take control of the train in general. That's all in the mindset of, we can save this whole train. But there comes that turning point, right when Martin Sheen falls off, of we can only save half this train. Maybe, just maybe, the other half will survive just on luck alone. But right now, we're struggling to even save half of it. And that's that same sort of, once the train falls off, once it tumbles down, it gave me that same sort of feeling of deep impact, where uh -huh. these people were doomed. They, there was never a chance. As soon as Martin Sheen fell off, there was never going to be a chance that they survived because this bridge was always going to collapse, whether they knew it or not. Might I even, you know, I said it's about half just based on how many train cars we see fall down. Can I mm. speculate that it was actually 60% of the train and that way it's the exact same kill rate as the virus, which just makes it dramatically ironic? You can speculate all you want and I'll go ahead and back you up on it. <laughs> it's just too poetic. Yeah, to, to, it was it was ten cars and six of them fell off. Yeah, it's just too poetic to to not yeah. you know discuss that possibility. Uh, yeah, because yeah, obviously you know we, we kind of like jumped ahead because like so much of the interesting stuff is in this ending and mm -hmm. uh, you know like this pivot point halfway through at Stockholm where all these armed guards with hazmat suits come on the train and they let the doctor kind of be in control of like running things medically, but obviously once he eventually starts to oppose them that's when they become this villainous sort of like force and it's kind of interesting how it gets there because it kind of starts off with like you said martin sheen it turns out he's not actually infected with the virus we think he is because he's, he's got some of the symptoms but the doctor's mm. kind of already like sussed it that it's actually withdrawal symptoms he's just desperate for an, an, another hit <laughs> yeah. and even though he like takes his sugar mama by gunpoint mm up to the front of the train, uses her hostage. She's very calm about the whole thing, it has to be said. Yeah. Uh, but he, he points the gun at the guards, he picks up one of their machine guns, he demands that they, you know, he's going to shoot them all if they don't stop the train right now. And what's so mm. funny is that at this point, we, the audience, don't know that this is actually the right thing to do. Because this, this, is, mm. this is before we've quite got to the point where, oh, this train not stopping is actually certain death because this bridge is that, you know, dangerous. Right. So... Mm. They kind of talk him down and they kind of let him off easy with it because it's like, well, where's he going to go? There's, there's not really any yeah. you know, point. He's stuck on the train. Like... So uh, he ends up like, so it's actually kind of touching that him because he was kind of this like villainous guy for a minute because mm -hmm. out of fear. And it actually, of all things, it reminded me a little bit of uh, of Speed. So you're in Speed when Jack yeah. jumps on the bus and there's this one guy who thinks that this cop's on the bus because he's like wanted for like robbery or something this is right. some petty crime and he, he pulls mm. out a gun and he has this big standoff moment. that's kind of what this reminded me of because it's like he he's like thinking not so much that all the hazmat suits are for him but 
oh, like, I have to get off the train and I have to get do all this. And they're not letting me do it because I'm this heroin smuggler. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's exactly. That. So I, I got, like, a little bit of a speed flashback. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I got a speed flashback just because, at least in the uh, first half of the movie, or, no, I guess the second half more specifically, it does follow, like, that same sort of beat of you are in a vehicle that mm. is going to explode and you have to find a way to save lives however that may be they want to try to just stop the train but the whole second half of it is pretty speed in general yeah yeah so it's obviously the tone's very different because they're they're going at a very different angle but yeah absolutely absolutely, yeah uh Uh, one thing one thing you didn't mention though and it's we said we bring it up is that during that standoff between martin sheen and the rest of them is when the radio gets destroyed Yeah, yeah yeah and so there is no communication between the general but it's weird in that they set that up in order to justify like, hey, situation has changed. We need to stop the train and whatever soldier on board is currently the one in charge because communication lines have been disrupted. But even if the communication lines weren't disrupted, the general was made clear he'd still be making the same decision. Like he'd still be keeping the train going. So it didn't really matter that the communication lines were disrupted at all. It just kind of gave a little bit more I guess, maybe reason for them to try to take over. Maybe it's just that idea that, like, maybe if the doctor on the train confirmed to him, no, people are getting better. Like, literally everyone is getting better, and this is over. And there's nothing mm-hmm. to be scared of. Like, maybe that would have changed things. Maybe it wouldn't have, you know, probably wouldn't have given the way that he Yeah, reacts. because the doctor, who is literally next to the general, points out, like, hey, the dog is cured. Like, it's it's fixed. And he's just like, yeah, for how long? Like, he doesn't believe her, basically. He says it's... That's a dog either way. Like, perhaps this disease is still being carried in some way. Perhaps it's still being... Perhaps there's one person on board who still is just a carrier. They don't explicitly say that there is, but he is making up all these excuses basically just to cover his own mistake up, to cover up the U.S.'s mistake up, yeah. I should say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, I mean, we, we, we jumped right into that back half to talk about all this just here stuff. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of character introduction things that, you know, there's a lot of stuff with the, you know, the doctor and his ex-wife and them sort of rekindling a little bit. I mean, they are the main characters. They if are, anyone has to yeah. be the main character, they're the main characters. Absolutely. And it makes sense that you've got a doctor on board who just naturally becomes this authority figure because he can help and help solve the problem that's going on. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a couple of things early on where he first hears that there's a virus of some kind, he's told about it, and he goes to like check, mm-hmm. and he, he saw the guy that was infected earlier on, so he knows who to look for. Um, like when he first goes up to speak to him after that, and they're, they're checking his body and stuff, Part of me did think like, you, you're getting enough of close there. Like, I, I thought you may cover your face or something, yeah. but yeah, whatever. I I feel like that's just one of those things that we became aware of in 2020. Yeah. Where we're like, <laughs> eh, maybe I uh, don't like this. It's it's not just coughing. You don't have to worry about him coughing. It's the breathing part too. And they do specifically say it is a um, an airborne. Like it is through lungs and coughing and stuff like that. It isn't just a you know, through wounds or whatever like that. Yeah. And I guess, I suppose some of the other characters do represent different things that are kind of relevant later where he is this criminal who's naturally working against the man just in general because he's a criminal. Mm -hmm. And then you've got O.J. Simpson who is Interpol. So he is technically part of the system and he's he's hunting something. So the idea that those two are working together by the end of the film to try and 
save the train is is showing just like what thinking outside of their role is and yeah you know i i think that it's it's trying to get forward a thing of the individual versus the faceless like conglomerate sort of thing where especially with that ending reveal of the phone like the government as a whole is just this faceless blameless organization where you can't particularly point to anybody who made the decision to do this horrible thing it just kind of is the marching order of the whole place meanwhile the individuals are able to specifically make these decisions to do the right thing and it's only once you get into this once you are unable to be blamed for something individually that's where a lot of morality goes out the window I think is where it's pointing to, or at least I feel is pointing to. Yeah, you, you've got the wife of an arms dealer who yeah. thinks she's in control the whole movie and then finds out the guy she's been with has been using her to like to, to get away with yeah. all the smuggling underneath her underneath her nose. So mm. again, there's this kind of humbling element to it uh, of yeah. like, oh, you, you thought you had this or you had this much power and turns out it means shit. Turns out, mm. you know, you were, you were being taken advantage of by someone else. So I, I think there's like snippets of that throughout all the characters and kind of how they ultimately fit into the themes by the end like you said all their plots feel very separate in the first half they absolutely do but oh yeah um you know they, they all I, I fit think, into the theme by the end i think the only character that really doesn't get as much as i think they were kind of pushing for is the train conductor because mm. it showed that he's good friends with uh kaplan but in the end he's kind of just like the map to the train he's like <laughs> yeah. oh come uh, let's let's go down to the storage quarters they're right down here i'm the one who has the key so he's the only one who gets a little bit shafted but everyone else is pretty much i would i wouldn't say equal players because obviously uh the doctor and the writer are the primary ones but it's more equal than i would even say poseidon adventure was in that some characters like Gene Hackman's character was so far and above the main character of that movie, whereas this one, it's closer. It's not as no, disparate between roles. Because I think with the main couple in this, with the Doctor and the ex-wife, uh, who's the writer, you, you keep calling mm. the writer, I keep calling the ex-wife, just in case that's confusing for anyone. Yeah. Uh, but they like they share a lot of moments before anyone else knows what's going on, where she she's there to represent the concern of someone who doesn't... like. He obviously understands this threat and is like terrified by it, but she's like sort of like reacting to him reacting to it and is mm. becoming like the normal person who's terrified by it before the rest of the train gets to find out. So mm. there's a purpose in her character in that sense as well. Mm. Uh which is actually one little detail that I wanted to bring up, uh just to go back to what we were saying about uh the, the bridge and uh talking about like the individuals versus the establishment and all that is mm -hmm. one detail they could bring up multiple times is that there was people who lived under the bridge a long time ago and they decided mm -hmm. to move because they actually thought the bridge was unsafe. Again, it's this idea that the individual people or the lower class or however you want to rephrase it, yeah. collectively said, this is unsafe, we are moving and evacuated where the bridge mm -hmm. is. And it's laid there dormant for you know decades as a, as a result with, with no right. one next to it. Uh, so again, these these decisions were made uh, by yeah. people, and yeah. Just one thing, one thing I want to bring up in terms of um, theming, or I guess more characterization, is that I feel that the ex-wife slash writer and the doctor they keep on pushing that the ex-wife is really good about her hunches. She's really good, like 
whenever she has a hunch about something, she's she always follows it and always goes through with it. I feel that the pair of them are meant to represent like the average person's like intuition and then ability to reason through it. The ex-wife represents the intuition and the doctor obviously being more left-minded, he is the one who can reason through and be like, okay, this, that, and the other thing. Um, which is something that, you know, the government as a whole, it's just executing orders. It's just, here's policy. We aren't going to question it. We aren't going to feel like if something's wrong, we're going to change it. We're just going to do as policy says. And I wonder if that is a intentional characterization beat for that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, do you think there's like a... I'm just wondering if there's something to the the idea that O.J. Simpson's pretending to be a priest and then ultimately when he reveals what what he really is, it happens in an exchange where he comes in and Martin Sheen's like sick from withdrawal and the, you know the, the, mm. the sugar mama's like sort of sitting next to him right. and O.J. Simpson comes in and she says something like, oh father, like awfully kind of you to like come and offer like, you know, a prayer or whatever, but it wouldn't help, mm. he's an atheist. And OJ pulls out a gun and says, so am I. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I just, I can't help but wonder if, the, again, this idea of the church as well as, as kind of an establishment, you know, organized religion is this like body, it's this entity. Yeah. And it turns out that the character we thought represented that is actually, you know, not that. And just, you know, at one point literally just pulls the collar out and isn't that anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that it is a, it's a strange characterization because obviously Martin Sheen's character, for that scene at least, is meant to be more of a villain. Mm -hmm. He's meant to be more of an antagonist towards the average person. Uh, but yeah, no, the fact that he is a priest and then, you know, he takes it off and represents still the man. But that only falls apart in the sense that I don't feel like if at any point in this movie, O.J. Simpson's character was represented to be the villain, you know? Pretty much he was always on the protagonist side the whole way through. And the only time it would have flipped would have been that scene where he was pulling out a gun on Martin Sheen. But Martin Sheen immediately flipped that around to be the villain. So at no point was O.J. Simpson an antagonist, I think. No, not at all. In this movie. I really want to clarify that. O.J. Simpson was not an antagonist <laughs> in this movie. In real life, maybe a little... Maybe, uh, just a tiny bit. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I just thought it was, I was wondering about the, the, the thematics yeah. of that, and just as, as if it's also sort of, because I, I wouldn't say there's a lot of, there's not a lot of characters in this who start praying to God for help or anything like that. No. It's all about characters being proactive and actually solving the problem and doing something about it, which I guess th fits into the theme of Gene Hackman's character from, yeah, uh, exactly from Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, it's it's they. At no point in this movie did any character say, well, let's just go over the bridge and see if it works. Like, no, at the whole way through, they're fighting this. They're not saying, let fate decide. Let It's all about, no, we have to do something here. And I feel like that's kind of a running theme throughout all disaster movies, thinking about it. There's very few, because it's just not narratively interesting. There, at no point oh, is sure. there any interest of saying, like, no, let's be passive protagonists. <laughs> it's like, no, we want to see them do something. So There is quite often, though, the character who represents that side, though, who wants to be passive. Mm -hmm. You know, Poseidon Adventure definitely had that. Yeah, that was uh, Ernest Borgnine's whole character. Yeah. And, you know, this I don't think necessarily does. The only character who 
is saying, oh, they should just go over the bridge, it'll be fine, is the one who kind of accepted that it isn't, is just lying about it. (laughs) So it's not the same thing. I, I think that the issue in this movie is that there is no passive choice. Like, no matter what, both sides are actively making a decision to do something. Mm-hmm. Because the passive choice would be, let them just hang around town and intermingle. Like, don't send them to a location, don't do anything, just let them be. And that passive choice would make for less of a train disaster movie and more of a virus disaster movie. That'd be the part where it gets into Stockholm and everyone freaks out. I think what's interesting about actually the setup is that Obviously, no one would ever argue that what these, uh, you know, peace protesters are doing oh, yeah. is right. You know, they're, they're setting off a bomb in a building that has people in it is, is never in any way, shape, or form okay. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting about it is the idea that, yeah, what they're doing is wrong, but it's not their fault that this virus thing really happens because the Americans are already, like, breaking rules by having it there in the first place. So oh, yeah. th- this virus spreading, as much as obviously they directly you know cause it by like interfering and you know getting involved mm. it shouldn't have been there so it's just exposing yeah. the fault that was already there from the establishment you know so it's it's kind of an interesting again thing just to think about thematically leading into the, what the rest of the movie starts saying about it's the the the, the establishment it's the man it's the, it's the organization that is at fault mm. that is doing all these things without caring about the people underneath and mm. you know Again, the idea that underneath the bridge, there's people who chose to move away. They weren't told to right. move away by Poland's government, necessarily. They just m- yeah. moved away because they knew it was unsafe. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh feel like we're kind of wrapping up, but one thing I did want to bring up is the scene before Martin Sheen starts trying to go down the side of the train. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tries to instead go up the top of the train. And twofold of this scene, first off, I think, can you agree with me in that those are the worst special effects of the whole movie? Oh, yeah, like the the, the, the rear screen projection or whatever it was when he stuck his yeah. head at the top of the train did look pretty. And this is the sort of thing that um, I know can be done in a pre-CG era because I've seen other mm-hmm. train movies where you see characters walking up and down the top of a train and it looks fine. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this, this looks rough but it's, it's just you know it's one shot effectively of him sticking his head out yeah which then leads me into my second point of he he looks up at the top of the train we see footage of the top of the train and then he jumps back down and says i can't do it quote they're all over up there did i miss something it's <laughs> the way he was describing it it made it sound like the guards were literally like on top of the train but i didn't see anything so did i miss something there no, I I noticed this too. It's uh, either he's lying because he's scared, but then he's willing to climb out on the outside, so that doesn't really make much sense. Because right. uh, if anything, this feels more dangerous climbing on the outside. It feels more yeah. stealthy going up top. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he means that the cables and stuff are too low down, and that seems dangerous. I was thinking that because they keep showing the cables, but at the same time, it didn't seem. Maybe it was just a issue of how they shot it, but it didn't seem too low that he couldn't have just like crawled his way up. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there is maybe like not so much that they're on top of the train necessarily, but the idea that uh, maybe if maybe if I looked at the scene again, maybe there, you can see a guard like where, where the trains meet, you know, the two cars meet. I should say, mm. maybe you can see like one sort of clearly been able to see up to where he's coming. I don't know. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah but oh, I, I kind of I, I, initially I took it as 
he's making this excuse up because he's too scared to do it. Right. Uh, but mm. then he immediately offers to do the equally crazy thing of climbing alongside the outside of the train. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I mean, apparently he climbed a mountain. I don't know if we ever necessarily found out if that was true or not, but apparently that's what he was doing before he met. Uh, it was being recounted by the sugar mama, so I have to assume that it's kind of true. Yeah, we have to assume. I mean, he, he seems confident climbing, at least. And that's why yeah. he's doing it this way, but, it, you know. Um, yeah. So, I, like, honestly, the tragedy of the back chunk of this movie is is very impressively done and actually mm-hmm. hits kind of hard uh the last 15 20 minutes are especially quite good uh mm-hmm. and I, I think there's good pockets of a lot of good stuff there i think the start's really strong uh with the setup yeah. the introduction of the passengers is fairly strong um it slows down a bit as we're sort of bouncing around all of them whilst we're still like, getting to the point where anyone knows there's a virus on the train right uh, but once you get to Stockholm, I would say, when like, the, everything yeah. really starts ramping up, I think the back half of the movie is all pretty much like just you know constantly doing things. It's constantly shaking things up. And you realize that it's becoming less about surviving a virus. And the irony being that the virus ultimately wasn't that much of a threat. And it's the people who are a threat, which is, you know, again, mm-hmm. a very disaster movie and lots of movies, really. But, you know, man is the real monster. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, if if instead of them putting them comatose, this thing switched over to oh, they're making them into zombies. We it would literally just be the same thing. Of yeah, I'm sure the zombies would have been an issue for like maybe ten minutes of the movie, <laughs> but then it would have flipped over to how is the hierarchies of this train going to shake out yeah. as they try to hide from the zombies? Absolutely, that's just you know, I, I think. It, this is absolutely still a disaster movie, but it is a very different disaster movie to, you know, Poseidon Adventure, Terror Inferno, and stuff like that. And I think that's one of the exciting things about doing this season is, uh, you know, because, you know, when I was doing research for, you know, what's considered a 70s disaster movie, this was showing up quite heavily on, like, every list. So uh, mm. there, there was no doubts going into it that it, it fit, but it definitely does feel different and it plays different. And I'm kind of pleased that it's so different from Poseidon Adventure because it, yeah. it it felt quite refreshing by the end, bizarrely. <laughs> I'm wondering if this would have been even better for us in like week three or four of this month where we've already been through a bunch of things that feel the same and then we get all oh, of a sudden sure. get this refresher. Yeah. This is two of five for the season. Uh, yeah. So we'll see, you know, I think next week we're on to the big bus. So. Oh boy. Uh, so another vehicle. <laughs> Uh, but this is an atomic-powered bus, I believe, so... It, it, it... But by the end of the movie, it's going to be a virus. That's where they get you. <laughs> I mean, th- th- this next one claims to be part comedy. Like, that's actually in the genre list, okay. so I'd expect right. something a lot more lighthearted with the next one, but, I mean, I- I'm just going based on, like, you know, the, the genres in IMDb. Gotcha. <laughs> so, who knows? They're not that trustworthy. Yeah. But... Uh, I will trust their trivia until the day I die, though. Yeah, honestly, I, I I went into this not knowing what to expect and got into it quite quickly and found myself very surprised by the end. I quite like this. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely... it. I think I fell out of it a bit more in the middle than you did. Mm. Um, I was just getting a bit sort of blasé with the whole thing. But yeah, once it hit the Stockholm section, and even then the Stockholm section felt like it dragged for a little bit, Especially there was uh they make the call over a bullhorn or something like that of 
We are going to be making this announcement once, and only once, in your language. But we will be saying it in five different languages. And I was like, as soon as the announcement kept going for like four minutes, I was like, please don't repeat this announcement again. <laughs> I can't, I can't take 20 minutes of this in German. <laughs> I think that's just a very 70s thing, is to really sort of mm -hmm. let those things play out. Because I, I remember, you know, we've done yeah. 70 seasons on Ace, uh, me and Tara, and... Mm -hmm. There's definitely some movies in that where there's a movie called The Terminal Man, where there's like a scientific procedure at one point. And this procedure, mm. it gets like a full 10 minute scene of like painstaking detail of every part of it. And it does feel like this is a very 70s thing to just like do the whole yeah. thing. Just, you know, let's not edit any of it out and just go for every bit. But I, I think spending all the time with the characters did make the ending stuff hit a bit harder when a few of them die really quickly. Oh, yeah. I, th I think the only thing that fell apart for me character-wise at the ending is, strangely enough, the nanny and the little girl, who we had not mentioned that much up until now, but because they didn't have much of a role, and yet somehow this little girl crying for her nanny immediately caused O.J. Simpson's character to die. And then at the very, very end of the movie, uh, the doctor and the ex-wife they start making out, and this little girl who was saved is just staring at them. And they they have this moment that seems to be like, oh, this little girl, she lost her nanny. We will take her in. We will protect her. But they explicitly say that it's the nanny. Like, she has a mom and dad. This moment felt just a little bit weird to me that it's like, in any other disaster film, it's the moment where they, like, agree to adopt this kid more or less because she's all alone in well, the world. Well, that's why it's not a big deal is because it's like, oh, we're just going to look after her to get her back to her parents and that's it. I guess. <laughs> it just, it's because of the way I've seen other films though, like so many times the kid is now parentless and this moment where they like bring the kid in and they're hugging the kid and whatnot is the moment where they're like, you're going to live with us now. And it's like, she, she's got parents, guys. Yeah, you need to bring them back to her parents. The OJ thing made a, a little bit of sense to me, just in a structure perspective, because ev almost yeah. every scene she had was with with him. It was her being inquisitive with him and poking oh, yeah. holes in his like story, <laughs> and him getting annoyed at it. Uh, you know, things like that, asking why he's got a different initial on his handkerchief. Because this is why I was thinking he was a bad guy, is because oh, he's killed someone and taken their outfit. <laughs> That's what yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> he killed a priest. Uh, um, but yeah, no. The only reason I don't think that it doesn't work structurally, it just by far out of any character that can be considered even named characters, I think those two are by far the least developed. Sure. And yet they still have this poignant part at the end of like, no, the girl's going to be with them. It's like, okay, well, sure, I guess. Yeah. I was going to say the young couple as well, but I suppose they don't have like a big poignant moment. They just kind of like, the, the guy gets shot. I, mean, I think the woman survives, yeah. but the guy gets shot just kind of suddenly at one point. Yeah. Uh, it's a good moment though, because it's like him and then someone else immediately gets killed. Like you know, It's the nanny. It's yeah. the nanny, because they're just in this line. They're just in this straight line uh, mm. getting mowed down. It's just horrific. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I think, I think in many ways that's what the sugar mom is there to represent, is someone who is just so ignorant to everything going on that she's just always... Like, even when, like, she's held at gunpoint, she's still just treating things like everything's a game and it's, she's above it all because she's rich and she's, you know... Yeah. Like, my husband's so powerful, this doesn't matter to me, like... Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, and... 
I, I, it's almost realistic that she doesn't ever like sort of learn and like get scared into reality. She's still just as yeah, obtuse about it by the end. Because so, you know, if twenty twenty and that's taught me anything, <laughs> it's that some people, despite all evidence to the contrary, will still just believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, yep. To the to the bitter end, it's it's quite something. But you know, I I, I came out of it really feeling like I watched a really interesting movie that I hadn't heard mm-hmm. of that. It's a disaster movie, but also goes for it's sort of punching a little bit higher as far as what it's trying to say and feel. Yeah, it's not a disaster movie just for shock and awe. It does definitely have some societal something to say about society as a whole, something to say about how people interact with power structures and stuff like that. It isn't just a hey, we got ten million dollars to crash a model train set and we're gonna make it the biggest moment you've seen this year. It's it's actually really good. Like it's a really impressive. Like this this train crashing sequence at the mm-hmm. end is is very surprisingly gnarly. I think what sells it even more for me is the fact that they crash the train. They cut back to some other place, probably the military office, and then they cut back and just show the dead bodies floating mm-hmm. in the water. Like it sells it more of like, yeah, we had that big moment of, oh my, everything explodes and whatnot, but then. These people are still dead, and the movie sells that to you. Of this wasn't just shock and awe, and then you can forget about it. This is a lasting impact. Yeah, sort of scene. It feels like a big deal having it at the end, and ha- having it be this kind of like bitter, bittersweet success that they kind of succeeded mm-hmm. in saving some of the train, but all these people up front uh, all died, and you know, so yeah. it, it leaves you kind of a, 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 a very somber. Mm-hmm. And and I cannot emphasize enough the the bill to this bridge and the horror movie music every time we cut to the bridge <laughs> to like you know just like oh we're getting there we're getting to the Cassandra crossing because the first time it came up which is when the military guy you know the colonels said oh we're going to send them up to here and they're going to eventually land here uh the the, the locals call it the Cassandra crossing and the camera does this thing where it kind of like goes up and like focuses on this point in the map and the music right. has this little sting as you see the the the, the name of the the place which happens to be the movie's title, on the map. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's it. Like, they've done like a little cheesy moment there to like, oh, that's the name of the movie. Like, this is where it's all building up yep. to. But I was not expecting it to be this prominent thing for this, you know, Holocaust survivor to keep bringing up that it's near this concentration camp. That he, if it's not specifically mm-hmm. the one that he was at, certainly he knew of it and he's, you know, yeah. he's, he, he was in the camp in the same country. Uh and then as it went on, it was like, no, no, the bridge at Cassandra Crossing is like a death trap and we're all going to die mm-hmm. there. So it all became about that bridge. So I, I guess I wasn't expecting the name to be as important to the movie as it ended up being, but it actually yeah. is. I mean, when it's first pitched to us, it's literally just, here's the route we're taking. It's like naming a movie Route 66 or something like that. It's like, no, it's just the road. Like, the end result is where we're going to. But then as you get more into the movie... I I guess from a meta standpoint, you should have realized it was going to be more important because it is the name of the movie. But it does do a good job of slowly revealing over the course of it. Like, no, it's yes, the end result, like whether it's the camp or whether it's this concentration camp, it is this bridge is going to be the focal point of the story. You say and that, you get, but I've definitely seen movies where like the name of the movie is like something in the movie and it's not as anywhere you know it's, it's, it's oh yeah you know, no. it's, of course not it's not a big deal necessarily it's just what they've chosen to name the movie after yeah but uh you know yeah 
great, great final 10 minutes like seriously yeah very surprisingly excellent i i was not expecting it uh so i, I guess we'll rate the film then uh out of 10 david what you uh what you thinking <sighs> ah this is a tough one honestly um because it does feel like a movie of two halves for me and the mm. second half is very very well done the first half though it does drain just a little bit from it um I think I'm going to go ahead and say I think it's a seven for me. I think I'm giving this one a seven, just ever so slightly lower than Poseidon Adventure last week. And that's just because while the end bombastic, while I feel it did have something to say, while I do think it was good, um, there were just those moments in the beginning where it wasn't keeping me engaged and if it wasn't for the sake of this show i think once we hit like maybe the 45 minute mark i was gonna think it was like too slow it was not getting anywhere because for a two-hour movie where i was informed in the beginning that there was going to be this virus outbreak obviously that doesn't happen there is no real virus outbreak in this movie it is so a minuscule part of the larger story being told but the movie takes just a tiny bit too long to get there for it. Having said that, being forced to sit through the movie for this show, I'm glad I did. I'm glad that I did sit through and get to the second half. Um, but I do think it does dock just a little bit of the fact of I even was bored at any point in this that I was debating whether or not it was even worth getting to that point. So seven for me. Yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised by this, and I wasn't really sure what to expect going in. I think the the build up and the teasing of like how the virus is going to spread, uh, and watching this like guy who's boarded the train who ultimately dies quite early on, but he mm-hmm. him moving around and him like you know patting a baby in the head or you know brushing past someone else, and it's like okay, here's all the places, but all that I think is quite interesting to watch as it's introducing all the other characters. Uh, there's just a little bit of a lull and then once it sort of takes a turn and then slowly kind of reveals what it's really doing for its end game uh, I, I think is really fascinating and the change of tone and realizing oh that's what this movie really is uh, is quite exciting to me and then the last like 10-15 minutes with the train wreck and the, the poignant mm. kind of downbeat ending were a genuine surprise because it kind of feels like with this it's like it's a disaster movie but it's not necessarily sticking rigidly to the disaster movie formula. And as a result, it, it feels quite fresh to me because of that. Um, the pacing to me, I, I think, is just very 70s. And I think there's a lot of movies from the 70s that have this kind of pacing. So and maybe I'm just a bit more attuned to it because I've, I've seen a bunch of movies. Say, I am very naive to the 70s. I mean, I've seen the biggest hits, but I have not gone deeper down the rabbit hole. So uh, all of that is... To basically say, I think I'm actually going to go a little higher than Poseidon Adventure and give it an 8. Okay. So, I think I'm feeling a bit more positive about it. So, yeah, yeah it's definitely uneven. I would agree it's a little uneven, but mm. it's a very, like, good and interesting uneven film. And I think, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll take this over, uh, you know, your, your clean-cut, like, cookie-cutter mm-hmm. action movie any day. Easy-peasy. So, you're Roland Emmerichs. Yeah, you're Roland Emmerich. I mean, <laughs> jeez, oh, fucking nightmares from Moonfall. Uh, 
the moon fell. That, that was the plot. The, the moon was falling. You get what's on the box. I don't <clears> see what the issue here is. Uh, so as for our, our agreed ranking, uh, yes. our determination, does it make the cut? Uh, I think it's pretty clear for me that it yeah. does make the cut. Yep. Same. Yeah. I have no qualms with that. Okay. It makes the cut. There you go. Uh, that is the Cassandra Crossing, uh, our second of five disaster movies, 70s disaster movies specifically, uh, for this season. Uh, next week we are doing The Big Bus, which is another one that I'd never heard of uh, until I went researching. So here's hoping for something entertaining. I guarantee you, there's a bus. And it's big. And based off these other movies, it'll probably be a virus or something at some point because got to have your pivot. <laughs> I don't... Poseidon Adventure didn't pivot. It didn't pivot that hard. There was a there was a little bit in there, but for the most part, it stayed pretty stock forward. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know what to expect from it, but we'll find out. Yeah, so, uh, thank you very much for joining us, of course. You can tell us what you think of the Cassandra Crossing if you've seen it down in the comments below. Like, subscribe, ding the bell for notifications, all those things help us out. As does, of course, go over to patreon.com slash TV and support us for as little as a dollar per month. Uh, you get bonuses and all sorts for supporting us over there, uh, both for this show, like the bonus episode every month. Uh, obviously, we did Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which will already be up and available to patrons, the sequel to the Poseidon Adventure. Uh, so you can go check out that. And of course, uh, hit the super thanks button on YouTube as well if you want to do a one-time thing. But any and all support does help us out. And of course, you get bonuses for other shows here from Mail Fuzz Movies and Mail Fuzz TV. But uh, that is uh, that is us. That is the show. So thank you once again for watching or listening. We always appreciate it. Keep watching movies and nothing stops this train. Mm-hmm.